From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm Stella Bugby, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. Recently on the podcast, we got to go to Elizabeth Warren's house. And the reason we were invited is my friend and colleague, Rebecca Traster. She writes about politics for New York Magazine and The Cut. And when something breaks in the news, she's the first person I text, because I want to hear her take right away. Rebecca has thought a lot about women in politics. She's written about the history of single women as a political class, about rising stars like Stacey Abrams and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she's profiled presidential candidates. In 2016, she went on the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton and got Hillary to open up like few people could. But of course, having this beat means living with a lot of heartbreak and rage. When Hillary Clinton lost, it was Rebecca's job to watch it happen, minute by minute. Same with Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, Louis C.K. and Brett Kavanaugh. While a lot of people were at home, hiding under their blankets, having quiet panic attacks, Rebecca was writing and writing and writing. And in addition to writing for The Cut, Rebecca has put out three books, including her latest, Good and Mad, a book about female anger. The thing is, even though I work with her, I still have no idea how she manages to keep her head up, covering so much so deeply. And so this week, I'm filling in for Molly, and I'm going to make Rebecca tell me her secrets as part of our ongoing series, How I Get It Done. It's about ambitious women and how they live, how much sleep they get, how they manage their anxieties, their goals, and of course what they eat for breakfast. We're going to start where we always start, which is, what is your morning like? Well, my morning is made infinitely easier by the fact that I have a husband who does all the morning cooking and who actually is much better at getting up in the morning than I am. What does he make? It varies. Sometimes he just, you know, makes cereal. Sometimes he makes oatmeal. Sometimes he makes egg sandwiches. Sometimes he makes, if we've had tacos the night before, he makes breakfast burritos. Like, it's really good. It's wow. really good in my house. My, I'm coming my over. Morning, my morning is the best <laughs> part because I wake up and, like, there's breakfast. Um, then my part comes, which is, like, wrestling my four-year-old into clothes. And weirdly, with a four-year-old, there's still, like, a lot of... Peeing and brushing, like reminding, like, pee and brush, pee and brush, right? Like, there's a weird amount of my time, both morning and night, that is spent saying pee and brush. But let's just be clear for listeners who don't have four-year-olds. We're talking about brushing teeth. Yeah, brushing teeth, right? Just so, yeah. I'm not sure that's evident to those who don't have to tell another human to pee and brush. And then when do you start working? Well, that depends. I mean, sometimes I will have already started working. I wish I were healthy and, like, kept my phone in a closet or something, but I don't. It's right beside my bed. I'm looking to see what's happening as soon as I wake up. Do you do that so that you can respond quickly on Twitter, or do you do that because you might have a column that you think of? I do it so that I know what the day is like, right? Especially especially in the past few years when things have moved so quickly and, and the days are so full of horror. I find it psychologically easier, though I'm sure that if I had time for therapy, a therapist would tell me that it makes it much worse. Um, I find it easier to know from the start the day I'm walking into. And when you say that, you mean like whether or not some politician has done something horrible or whether or not we're at nu- in a nuclear I'm war. I'm whether or, like, or what, not, like what the things I remember, like th- certain things, like I find it easier to know when I get up and I'm walking to school that like Donald Trump has issued a ban on transgender people in the military. I don't find it easier to know that, but I find it 
easier to know it early than be surprised by it two hours into my day. I also can hear the voice of like an imaginary therapist in my head being like, no, it's better to just walk to school and take your kids and give them hugs and, you know, whatever. For me, I feel like an asshole if I've been like, woo, hey, everybody on the street and like not known the horror that has already happened in the world and in this country. Like, I don't know. This is it's not how I feel like I'm describing something deeply unhealthy. Well, so, okay, so so you know that. But do you still say, oh, hey, everybody? Yes, of course. I live my life saying, oh, hey, everybody knowing about the horror. Right. Like everything I write about is the horror. Right. But yes, I live my life as a very friendly and engaged person. (laughs) um, I do have like a healthy social and familial life full of love and pleasure and joy and communion and food and drink and all kinds of things. Like I live a life that is very uh, privileged and happy in a million different ways. At the same time, there's this undercurrent of what my work is, which is constantly thinking about various forms of injustice and inequity and being in the midst of a centuries-long battle for a better nation. So let's say you hear— That feels really overdramatic. Also, I write, like, short, pithy columns sometimes and, like, trash people on Twitter. I mean, I don't know. Like, what is my job? (laughs) Well, I was going to ask about the the trashing of people on Twitter aspect of it. I don't really trash people on Twitter except for Joe Biden. I would call it engaging. (laughs) (laughs) You're engaging on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, Joe Biden— I've spent a lot of time writing on Joe Biden. I was every morning I wake up and I think, you know what? Today maybe I'm not going to go after Joe Biden. And then you just can't help yourself. This past week I made it like 3 days. Okay, so you're full of anger in the morning about Joe and you take your kid to school. Then what do you do with that? Well, the thing that I'm doing like the the I'm trying to run as exercise. It's like very important both because like a doctor told me <laughs> no uncertain terms I had to start exercising. And I've never in my life like belonged to a gym or anything. And I don't enjoy exercise. And so a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, I will learn to run. <laughs> and, like, How does one learn to run? I Googled it. Really? <laughs> well, because I'm the kind of person who is like, I'm not an exerciser. Every time I exercise, I hurt myself. Yes, that's why I had to Google how to run because like the various times that I in my life obviously have thought like exercise seems like a thing I should do. And the only form of exercise that's ever appealed to me was running. And so I would try to run like how I assumed you run, like you start running and then I would be like like, one foot in front of (laughs) the And so I was like, there's got to be. And several knowledgeable people were like, well, no, you have to like learn to run. There are programs. And I was like, I'm not joining a program. Like, that's not happening. So I Googled it. And it turned out that I could learn to run. This is two years ago. That it was Wait, actually. so what's the secret? I need to know. Okay, so you walk. <laughs> <laughs> I can no, do wait. that. <laughs> no, wait, Stella, it's so great. If I could talk you into this, like, we could go together. Okay. It's awesome. All right, here's what you start with. You walk, and then you run for 30 seconds. You can do anything for 30 seconds, okay? So I would walk mm. when I started. <laughs> can when you? I started, I would walk for five minutes. I'd go to the park. Um, walk for five minutes, run for 30 seconds, walk for five minutes. And you're like, woohoo, I'm running. Okay. And then after like, you know, several days of that, then you start running for a minute. Over the course of weeks, you change the ratios. So I got to, this is, it was in 2016, actually. It was when I was covering the 2016 race and like, I could feel I was having panic attacks. I wasn't sleeping. Like, and this was part of my blood pressure was high. Like that was when the doctor was like, you have to do something to take care of your body. So That's when I went through this process. And I got to the following ratio. Run for five minutes, walk for two minutes. Wow. Wait, so did you ever consider quitting your job? In 2016? Or like changing your life dramatically? Did that 
Was that ever an option? No. No. I watched you go through that panic and anxiety that we were all feeling, but you were really like a conduit for it for a lot of us during the lead up to the election and then after and then literally for years since. But I also watched you throw onto your plate a book that was all about rage. Not only did you did you not back away from that job, you dove into it even more. And I'm curious, like, whether you feel that that was at your personal expense or, like, how your family dealt with it. Like, how did you deal with that? a topic, which was rage, which I'm sure fueled some rage also while you were writing it and kind of also unleashed some rage? I think in a lot of ways that book saved my sanity because what it provided, even though it was, like, yes, incredible stress, incredible sense of, like, deadline. Oh, my God, I'm adding this thing. How am I going to get this done? But in this case, that book was an outlet for me because there was so much that I was working through in my own head. Um, not just personally. It was, sure, my own personal rage, but also the things I was trying to make sense of about race, about whiteness, about gender and power and history and where we are in history and where we are. In, like, it was just this massive way for me to put, like, blocks in order. Like, the past few years, I've so often described my mental state as I feel like my brain is boiling, right? And that's not just like rage, right? That, that Sure, that's a component of it. It's like there's so many thoughts and so many things that I'm seeing about the country and how it's built and its foundations. And it's not, none of these things individually is news to me. This is stuff I've been writing for a long time. But like this period brings so much of it into relief. And you can't always tell it in a column. You get a little piece of it but, like, you want to say so much more in a column and there's not room. And you can't always say it in a profile or a feature. And so that book permitted me the space to, like, chart it out in a way that helped me pull it out of my brain and put it on a page in a way that made sense. And it was, while very stressful, also one of the biggest mental reliefs for me. So then you went on book tour. Oh. Talk to me about what it's like to be on book tour, to be meeting so many people. Like, personally, I find the meeting of people quite energizing. And I, I really love that. I love talking to strangers. I love that energy. You know, sometimes I think, oh, I could be a politician because it's really fun to meet people all day long. But some people really hate that. How is it for you? Well, I love meeting people. But the, the question of what it's like to be on book tour, I've had such different experiences of it. Because I had, in in 2016, I also published a book about unmarried women. And that book was a success. Like, I had a book tour. I went around the country. Um, you know, I did readings in bookstores. And sometimes 12 people came and sometimes 100 people came. And, like, that was, it was a book tour. Um, this book tour was entirely different. It was published the week of the Kavanaugh hearings and the week of Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, um, which meant both that it got a huge amount of press and the tour itself was really big. I mean, people were there not because they were happy. People were there because they were furious and scared and they wanted to tell me about it and I wanted to hear. Um but it was extremely intense, and it was it was every day. Also, like, there was a sense of, I mean, I think a, a lot of people want to know what to do. A lot of people want to know that it's going to be okay, which is the very thing that I cannot tell anybody because nobody knows we don't know if it's going to be okay, and there's a really good chance that it's not, right? And um, 
And I have it, too. I'm one of those people, too, right? Of course, I'd like to be told that it's going to be okay, right? Um, But it was extremely intense, that period. And also, I believed that it was going to, like, originally, it was sort of scheduled to go, you know, for six weeks, like October into November, and then it would slow down. But in fact, the tour went through the end of the year and then into January and February. How did your family deal with that? I can't even believe how well they dealt with it and how generous they all were about it. Everything was planned. I flew back. I was like, it was like red eyes and 5 a.m. flights so that I could be there at night or in the morning, right? Um, and I was home every week. Do you think that that was worth it in the end? Yes. It was worth it to see the kids. And, Absolutely. And I didn't. The one thing I can't believe that I don't feel and that I, I don't think my family felt either was that I was absent, even though I was physically absent a lot. It's very easy when you travel, if you have a partner who is doing the logistics and doing the dentist appointments and the drop-offs and the pickups, like, you can tune out, right? And my my husband is, you know, he, he does all that beautifully, wonderfully, generously. Like, he was doing it all without complaint, without, like, no one, my kids who miss me and I miss them, like, they were like, we get it. Like, we understand, you know, they... They didn't show signs of being angry or distant or anything like that. But it was, I missed, I was so lonely. I was so lonely. So what did you do to deal with the loneliness? Nothing. I just went to the next place. (laughs) There there were a couple of really dark moments. (laughs) There were a couple of really dark moments. I did completely lose it a couple of times. There was a moment when I was flying from Los Angeles to Wisconsin. And that was probably the longest stretch. It was some week that I'd been gone for like a lot of the week. Like I'd left on a Monday or something or maybe, you know. And I'd packed for like six different climates in one carry-on bag, right? (laughs) So I had a limited amount of clothes. (laughs) And um, the guy next to me started drinking very early on the flight. It was like an 8 a.m. flight. And the guy just kept ordering Jack Daniels. And, And I was wearing jeans, my one pair of like jeans. And the guy spilled a whole thing of Jack Daniels on my pants. So I smelled like a brewery. And it was like, I didn't know what time it was. And I am unfailingly polite. I was like, it's okay. It's okay. And inside, I was just like, this is my one pair of pants. This is a pair of pants I'm wearing tonight. I was like, like, I'm going to murder you. In the the airport where I was changing, I called my husband. I was like rushing. I was going to miss the connection. And I'm like rushing. And I'm just weeping to my husband, who was at a birthday party in Brooklyn. It was a Saturday. (laughs) He was like at a four-year-old birthday party. And I'm like, and I'm smelling Jack Daniels. And it's my only pair of jeans. And it's the only thing I'm going to And What, what did he say? He one of the, he was telling one of the other parents there what was going on, and together they decided they called the festival. I didn't know this. They called the book festival in Madison where I was going, and they arranged for the woman to go and get another pair of pants for me. And then I paid her with Venmo when I got there, like so that there was the same pair of jeans waiting for me in Madison. That's the most romantic story I've ever heard. It was so lovely. Wow. He was wonderful. I was a basket case. <laughs> yeah. What a what a lovely gesture. So you must have dated a lot of men before you met him. No. Well, okay. I lived like a nun. <laughs> I did, Stop. for real. No, it's not a, no, it's not a joke. Seriously? Like, oh yeah. I was like sexless for many, many years. Okay, I don't well, mean so sexless then... is probably the wrong word. I like I did not enjoy dating. I had a boyfriend in my twenties for a couple of years. And it was not a relationship that made me happy, though I was devastated when it ended. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> Yay. Naturally. Yeah. Um, but 
then I didn't meet anybody I liked. I was somebody who always wished that I was better at having casual sex. I am not good at having casual sex. Don't enjoy it at all. And so for years, like I went on, I went on dates. I had like a, a romantic comedy, like montage of horrible first dates. Like I did that. I went on a date with anybody who asked and I went on a date with anybody I was set up with, but I did not seek it out myself. And I can count the number of times I went on a second date over a period of like seven years of my life. Well, what I was getting at was how did you Sorry, know— Sorry, was this not about no. my sex life? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm curious about that. But I think that a lot of people uh, struggle with how to know whether the partner that they have is going to be supportive. And how does one identify that early on? Were there indications that Darius would be this capable of an egalitarian marriage that it sounds like you guys have? And then my second question to follow yeah. up that is, do you have advice for people— Looking for those situations, because I think a lot of people are. This is like a terrible, this is. Is that an unfair question? No, it's not an unfair question. It's a really, so I wrote a book about unmarried women. And like, I was very well aware of the fact that I was like a hetero married woman writing this book. Now, I wrote it in part because I lived as like a, a really single person. I didn't have a boyfriend through high school or college. Like up until I met Darius, which was when I was 33, my identity was as a, I was just unmarried. Um, and in partly when I met him and saw how people were starting to treat me as though my life was finally starting or like that was part of what led me to write the book on unmarried women because I was like, whoa, what the fuck? And people were treating me like, like, this was it. Like, now now I was a grown-up, and I was so livid about this. I was like, my life is full and valid and complete, and I was available to meet another person who had a full life. And that's part of it. <laughs> but that's hard. <laughs> um, that's like... You don't, we don't walk around being like, my life is full and valid and complete, right? And I am looking for another full and valid, va- valid and complete partner yeah. to share it with. Like, that's not, and it's, had I not met Darius, I have no, there's no reason to believe that I would have ever found, but I'm still the same person, right? Like, had I not crossed paths with this person, nobody would be asking me for advice about how to find a partner because I like the chances are I, I probably wouldn't have one, you know? So I don't, I'm not sure like how to answer that question, except to tell you that it is who he is. Like, I think I. Did you recognize that though right away? I, I never was somebody who like, well, I didn't pick people up. I didn't like, I didn't even, I wasn't even a person who would like walk down the street and be like, that guy's hot. I just didn't, I just, just not, it wasn't how I was in the world. Um, it's not that I didn't have sexual appetites, but, like, they were just not directed to people I didn't know. Like, and um, and when I I went to sit at my local Italian restaurant, to I went to get takeout to go home and work, and there was a guy eating at the bar, and I looked up in the mirror, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, oh, my God, you. that guy's hot. <laughs> and he's what I actually felt was like, he's my people. And that was the exact thought I had. And I broke a glass, like, I not on purpose, I did. I dropped a glass of water and it got in his food. And then um, we started talking. So, like, I never had that, I never had that experience ever in my life at 33 years old. 
of walking into an establishment, seeing a man and being like, you, I want you. <laughs> you will make my babies. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, but how do I give advice from that? You can't. You can't. You and can't. it sucks. And I'm like, and I'm, and I, like, I love, I love him and I love talking about him, but I'm also acutely aware, like, that... You got lucky. I got really lucky. And that as a single person hearing this, I'd be like, <laughs> okay, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. gross. Coming up after the break, what happens when staring into the deep, dark void of American politics day after day really starts to get to you. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. This week, I'm talking with Rebecca Traister, writer-at-large for The Cut. Before the break, Rebecca was telling me a little bit about her relationship with her husband. He's been there for a lot of rough moments, with breakfast burritos and clean clothes. But sometimes, the stress gets so bad that even breakfast burritos aren't enough. I have one other good story about the various stresses of this tour, (laughs) also about my husband. So I stopped from Christmas to New Year's, like I had the week off and like I was with my family in Philadelphia, which is where my parents live. And when I stopped, I began to have like intense uh, fears. This is the thing I hadn't really had in my life. I mean, I've always, I'm neurotic and I, you know, have fears about bad things happening all the time. But this was like another level. It was a weird thing that was happening. Like every time my brain slowed down, I began to have terrible fears about like, you know, mass terror and things like big global things. And it was a real problem. And I wasn't, I was sort of embarrassed about it. Like I didn't, it was, I'd never experienced it. I'm like, I'm sure it'll go away. I couldn't quite figure out like how, I knew it must've been connected to like having been so tired and on the road and everything. Like I knew that, but like, I didn't really want to investigate like what was going on in my brain. And I was like, I'm sure it's going to go away. I just need to get more sleep. I need to get more sleep. But I was like waking up in the middle of the night and having these terrible fears and like hearing a sound outside and imagining like, you know, a mass shooter or something. Like, I was just, it was a reaction that I was having to coming off the road and the intent, and not just being on the road. Right, Kavanaugh, being on the, the elections, <laughs> yeah. the like, you know, all of it. Um, and so on New Year's Day, my husband and I went to Philadelphia to go to the Barnes Museum. There was an exhibit we wanted to see. And we're at the Barnes, and all of a sudden the lights go out. Just there's a blackout. Um, and the Blackout probably lasts, I'm going to say, for 15 seconds before the generators come on and the lights go back on and there's a murmuring, like, <laughs> whatever. And um, I, like, sort of get choked up. And he's like, what's going on? And I was like, I was like, I don't know, it scared me. Like, the blackout scared me. And my husband was like, what do you mean it scared you? And I was like, well, here's what I was thinking. <laughs> and I went through. And what I was thinking was, okay. The grid is probably down. It probably oh, is proceeding an, like a massive attack. Um, where did we park the car? What roads can we take to get back to my parents' house? What direction should we go? Do we have a full tank of gas? Is there anywhere we have water? And my husband goes, do you want to know what I was thinking? I was like, yes. <laughs> and he says, I was thinking, cool, this is a heist. <laughs> <laughs> And at that point, I just, like, started to bawl, and I told him all about—because I was like, right, that is the appropriate thing to think. It's like, cool. He's like, they're going to switch the Van Gogh, right? Like, it's a, there's a blackout in the museum. 
And I was like, right, that's the human reaction to a 15-second blackout in the museum. And I also feel really silly even, I, I can't believe I'm telling this story, actually, because I feel very acutely aware of the fact that, like, my job is not that hard. Like, people have well, much actually, harder jobs well, than I was, mine. I was listening to this thinking, it's almost like the way the right-wing weirdos become completely, you know, obsessed with catastrophic events the more time they spend on the internet and on Twitter. And maybe having exposed yourself to so much of their thinking was, like, rubbing off on you in some paranoid way? That could be. Although, I don't know that it was exposure to their thinking. I think it was exposure to the levels, of, like, a lot of exposure to a lot of fear. And a lot of it, just, fear about lots of different things, a lot of it very rational, right? But it, I think I sort of absorbed a lot of it. I mean, that's my that's my explanation. And this went, this went away, like, it's, you know... And and also, I am acutely aware of, like, I'm describing an experience that sounds like trauma when my job is I sit at a desk and I write things and then I go on tour and I'm put in hotels and talk to large crowds of people and sell my books. Like, that is fundamentally the mechanics of my job. And it's not hard. It's a job of tremendous, like, I get many benefits. I am paid very well. The hotels were nice. Like, things are, I am not describing labor that is difficult or not describing physical labor. I'm not describing physically difficult labor, and I'm not describing there are a lot of people around the world who do a similar thing that I do with fear for their safety, their lives, that I do not experience. So I want to be really clear that, like, I'm not (laughs) trying to take on... um, But you can't control the reactions you have. I can't control the reactions that I have. Regardless of the privilege that you're given. Right. And, like... You can acknowledge that you have the privilege, but it doesn't really mitigate the stress of having. It doesn't mitigate the stress, and part of and and part world. of the reality is you're bathing in the the very harsh realities for millions of people who are not you, right. like and you know, and that's well, and a lot of people would choose to walk their kids to school before bathing in those realities, and not. And I'm sure my <laughs> imaginary therapist in my head would tell me that that would be a better choice for me. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. Molly, we'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McBee and Olivia Knapp. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Lynn Levy and me. Mixing by Haley Shaw. Music by Haley Shaw and Emma Munger. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. <laughs>